but soon to compete are some very dazzling science fiction films. Today, we sneak preview a few. First up, Blade Runner. Directed by Ridley Scott, who directed Alien, Blade Runner is a detective thriller set in a very crowded Los Angeles in the year 2019. Stars Harrison Ford as a bounty hunter who tracks down four deadly genetically manufactured human beings with superhuman strength. Time to die. Blade Runner is set for release on June 25th. Stop where you are! Turn away from it! Back to the present day, MGM has Poltergeist for release on June 4th. This Steven Spielberg production is about a suburban family terrorized in their spooky new house. With its flashy special effects and ghost-can-do-anything attitude, Poltergeist is anxiously awaited by those who like to have the heck scared out of them. They're here. Also from the mind of Steven Spielberg is E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Little is known about this film except that it stars a friendly alien lost and alone 100,000 light years from home. He's befriended by a small Earth boy. An extension of Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T. is heavy in visual effects. It's set for release on June 4th. Another alien from outer space is featured in The Thing, but this one isn't so friendly. Based on the same short story used by Howard Hawks to make The Thing in 1952, this version stars Kurt Russell. It's an all-male cast battling a deadly creature which can take on the appearance of any living life form. The movie has plenty of ice, blood, and things that go bump in the night. The Thing is escaping its icy coffin June 25th. There she is. Starring the original cast from the TV series Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan looks to be the movie Trekkies have been waiting light years for. Filled with lots of action and danger, Star Trek II features Ricardo Montalbaum as the vengeful Khan who sets out to kill Captain Kirk and destroy whoever gets in his way. One of the main features of this sequel is the ending where the beloved Mr. Spock meets his end. But of course, in science fiction, nobody really dies. Star Trek II should beam your way June 4th. In Entertainment Tonight's Summer of 82 preview clip. And uh, yeah, man, that's the Daz Band doing Whip It, which was number seven on the Billboard Top 10 chart July 4th weekend, 1982. Now, Human League's Don't You Want Me was actually number one, and Willie Nelson's Always On My Mind, McCartney and Stevie Wonder's Ebony and Ivory, and Toto's Rosanna were also in the top ten. But a uh, few songs both conjure up the era and are as much damn fun as freaking Whip It. Yeah, no one's <laughs> jumping in on a Willie Nelson. Like, but that's, have you ever actually listened to the words of that damn song? Nothing <laughs> fun about that at all. You send, that to, all. You send that to somebody you care about, they're going to they're gonna run for the hills. <laughs> Whereas with Whip It, if you were in a room of like three people or 300 people, everyone at the same exact time would go, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you don't get more summer than 4th of July weekend, and summer means movies. Now, uh, what can make the greatest film summer of them all? 1982, where within four months, Poltergeist, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, E.T., Rocky Three, Blade Runner, The Thing, Conan the Barbarian, <gasps> Tron, Firefox, and Officer and a Gentleman, Pink Floyd, The Wall, <gasps> The Secret of Nim, The Road Warrior, Night Shift, Diner, and more, which 40 years ago all opened back-to-back, week after week. Even better... How about reliving it with the people who, with whom you first saw some of those movies? That's what Craig and I are doing here today on The Movie Sneak. And I bought along one of my closest lifelong friends, attorney Keith Murray, who, aside from being the first proud Star Trek fan back in the day when you could be <laughs> stuffed in a, clo- in a locker for that stuff, I mean, Keith was a loud and proud Trekkie. 
still is. <laughs> and to this day, he's a, a part-time Captain America cosplayer who visits and brightens the lives of kids in hospitals. Cool. And I brought to the party my own near-lifelong chums, uh, comics illustrator, Marvel animator, Adam Hughes, and software designer, Carl Scott. And we all stepped into the Wayback Machine to that most memorable summer. I'm Craig Jamison of Phil Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney of TheLunchMovie.com. And welcome to an all-new and personally very special edition of The Movie Sneak. Where were you in 82, reliving the greatest movie summer of all time? So basically what we're going to do, we're just going to keep this informal as all hell and just um, we're not going to go in any kind of chronological order. We're just going to shoot the S about (laughs) what it was like seeing these movies. I mean, everybody right now, of course, is doing all the 40th anniversary of E.T., 40th anniversary of Poltergeist and all that kind of thing. So we're just pretty much going to do it from a personal point of view in one fell swoop and just talk about what it was seeing these movies with each other. Uh, obviously, we didn't all see all of them at the movies. You know, Like an officer and a gentleman, I never saw that summer. I didn't see it until early the next year on HBO for the first time. Uh, same thing with Diner. But uh, but yeah, you know, but the major ones, Poltergeist, Rathacon, all those. What were you doing in the summer of 82? I know this sounds like an American graffiti ad. Uh, <laughs> where were you in 82? But... Um, <laughs> But, uh, I mean, I know me, when we were going to see all these movies, I had my first car. It was that piece of crap green Pinto. Remember that? <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm 6'5", and I was pretty much 6'5 back then, too. And the only reason I fit in that thing is because the seat was broken, and it just it went all the way back. It couldn't move up, which was great for me. So I had leg room. But, yeah, I, I loved that piece of crap car. Ran it into the ground. Cost me 700 bucks. I did replace the transmission <laughs> once. But that has great memories for me. Um, it was a year after we graduated, so it was my year, first year back from college. I had my first heartbreak, so I was nursing that heartbreak all summer long, and these movies helped, you know. So, uh, <laughs> and Keith uh, and I were still on bikes in the summer. Of <laughs> yeah, we were thirteen that summer. You're you're uh, you're showing your age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Old fogies. Which actually made so, E.T. kind of resonate. Like, you know, bikes never look so cool as they looked in E.T. Like, all of a sudden, <laughs> even if you didn't have a bike, you, now you have to get one because that way aliens will hang out with you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's uh, let's start with hell. Let's just start with... Uh, now, both Poltergeist and Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan opened on the same day. It's funny, I don't remember them opening on the same day. Me neither. But, uh, <clears throat> but you know, according to this list, uh, they did. What hovers over this house? 
but it was strong enough to punch a hole into this world and take your dog away from you. He keeps Caroline very close to it and away from the spectral light. It lies to her. It says things only a child can understand. It has been using her to restrain the others. To her, it simply is another child. To us, it is the beast. Now let's go get your daughter. Now, Carl and Adam, did we both, did we all see both of those movies together? I seem to remember seeing Poltergeist together, but I don't think we saw Wrath of Khan all together. Okay, alright. So, now we, but but we were all together on Poltergeist, yes? I thought we were, because I seem to remember hanging out in the line at the theater hearing everybody screaming on the inside of the theater during the last like 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Hmm. And I do remember Doug Wilkinson was with us too, because he stood up and did the salute at the beginning, which no matter where you were and how many times you saw, there was always some smart ass who at the beginning when the national anthem plays stood up in the theater (laughs) and saluted. And Dougie was the smart ass in that particular screening. Um, (laughs) that, That I remember. But uh, so, um, what were your guys? Just jump in, cut each other off. First reactions to seeing Poltergeist because I remember we went and st- I, I remember we saw it there at the Eric and Pensalkin. We saw it in stereo, and mm-hmm. then a couple of months later, it played at the Fox Theater in Willingboro in mono on that much smaller screen, and it almost felt like a different movie. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Nice. What were your uh, first reactions to seeing Poltergeist? I think I think for me it was the um, you know it was the gross out factor of it because you had like you had movies in the 70s like um uh chainsaw texas chainsaw massacre that kind of as you got into the 80s everything was exploited more and jacked up more and the scene that stuck with like everybody more than anything was the guy peeling his face off in front of the sink <laughs> yep and the gross yeah. out factor of that and the shock factor of that because you'd never seen that before and i think that's the one thing that everybody walked out of there just like still gasping after the fact like holy crap what was that <laughs> And it was rated PG. I mean, this was before PG-13, but it was a PG-rated movie, yeah. Anybody want to add there? I I just remember being um, scared shitless because uh, I was a a terrified child. Uh, I remember in 79 when my mother took me to see Alien, and uh, I, I literally covered most of my face with my hands and just peeked through the, the, the crack between two fingers with one eye. <laughs> and my mother turned to me and said, what, is it half as scary that way? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, when your old mom hazes you, geez. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ, it's, she's, you know, my therapist owes her everything. Um, the, uh, the, uh, I remember, I remember, glancing away at a lot of poltergeists because it was really, 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 really spooky and creepy. And um, 
which is interesting because it, ha- it did have that that lovely Amblin shine to it. It did not have a yeah, like this... a like the uh, the gritty quality that say like Evil Dead or or or, or um the you know the whateverness that like Stanley Kubrick brought to The Shining. It, it had that that I think one of the things about Poltergeist was it had that friendly Amblin, you know. You know, everything's going to be all right by the end, kids. Kind of a quality that a lot mm-hmm. of their films had in the '80s, and uh, and they were lying. And Poltergeist <laughs> 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 was just a scary movie. You, you know, it's funny. Uh, you said that you were uh, just a, a scared child. Now, I um, it's funny. I had a lot of nightmares when I was growing up, but by the time Poltergeist came along, by the time I was you know seventeen, eighteen, I hadn't had any nightmares in like five or seven years. Um, even as an adult, I really don't have nightmares. I think part of it is because I kind of everything I'm afraid of ends up in a story somewhere. So all that stuff is getting out of my subconscious on a regular basis. But the two times I had nightmares coming back from movies were uh, the weekend we saw Poltergeist. I could not go to sleep. And the weekend I saw Twister. Wow. Because when I was a kid, I had nightmares about tornadoes all the time. And it revived all those childhood fears. And poltergeist, things I was afraid of as a child, it was like somebody was picking through my brain and was and, and was hazing me <laughs> on the screen. Because at my grandmother's house, there was a dead tree outside the window that I always thought would come in and grab me. Oh. At my great-grandmother's house in Virginia, she had these dolls with these creepy eyes, and I used to put coats over them. Um most kids had a fear of something under the bed grabbing you, you know. Uh, and seeing Poltergeist, I don't think I'd forgotten about those things, but subconsciously it just, it's like somebody was nudging me saying, hey kid, remember this? I'm going to mess you up this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and I could not sleep all weekend from that PG movie with the Amblin shine to it. Yeah, so Poltergeist, um, I definitely think it's one of the greatest horror movies ever made. And I definitely think it's, has one of Jerry Goldsmith has probably one of the ten best film scores of all time too. Yeah, uh, Poltergeist. Everything about Poltergeist is pretty awesome. And the neat thing also is if we have we oh, have. Um, go ahead. I'm sorry. What? Yeah, it, Spielberg first kind of started showing us this with Close Encounters mm-hmm. by just showing normal suburbia, mm-hmm. and then how the fantasy or sci-fi world is going to mess with it. But especially E.T. and Poltergeist, you know, the, all the things that we had in our house. They're walking around with Doritos. They got Star Wars, mm-hmm. uh, Star Wars figures. They got, you know, it looked like, for the first act, it looked like, if not your house, someone whose house you knew. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, like, yeah. And that wasn't something we'd seen in horror movies, and especially not in a PG horror movie. But like, yeah. everything was so normal and believable. Mm-hmm. So that when unbelievable stuff started happening... It felt, uh, for my, I mean, to a twelve-year-old at the time, it felt way more real than. Yeah, I saw Alien when I was nine years old too. It freaked the crap out of me, and a lot of there were a lot of other horror movies that I loved. But Poltergeist felt like going to my friend's house, like going to Keith's house, like going to our friend Matt's house. It that felt so normal, and until like things started creeping in and making it feel less normal, and then after that, like 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 Craig is just saying. You don't trust your own house anymore, <laughs> Adam. Were you about to say something? Well, I was also going to add <clears throat> that uh, you know we have to thank Poltergeist for one of its lasting cultural uh, uh, contributions. Uh, many times when I've had a project go south, uh, I, I will I will turn to the, my editor or my art director or whoever and go, you know, I guess this project was built on an ancient Indian burial ground. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yep. 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 Move the bodies. 
that is part of pop culture. You're absolutely right, man. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, I, All right, I, guess I would uh, have. I, I'll oh. throw in something, and that yeah. is what I was going to say. And basically, you know, Adam and uh, uh, the other gentleman said it that um, one of the things about poltergeist when I think of poltergeist probably one of the first things that comes to mind and you know as Craig mentioned we met because of our mutual love of film music so at that time that was one of the first things that I would look at when I went into a film was like okay let's you know let's listen to the music and all that and the opening scene with the kids on the bikes and the little uh, RC race cars mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. like ah, this is like, you know, wonderful suburban life, everything's normal. I tend to be bothered not so much by blood and gore and jump scares and all the other kind of stuff, but stuff that lingers in my brain and makes me think about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so in in that way, with everything being perfectly normal, you know, a lot of times you can kind of divorce yourself from things by saying like you know like alien oh well that's on some spaceship on some planet way out there but with things like this you can't really divorce yourself from it that way because it's like well yeah this took place in a neighborhood just like mine and a house just mm-hmm. like mine and you know people riding their bikes down the street and all that other kind of stuff like that so yeah i would definitely agree that um the whole idea of making things seem very very normal before turning everything on its head was one of the things that I remember about that movie. Well, like Adam said at the beginning, it was a big lie. <laughs> yeah. Sir, may I ask you a question? What's on your mind, Lieutenant? The Kobayashi Maru, sir. Are you asking me if we're playing out that scenario now? On the test, sir. Will you tell me what you did? I would really like to know. Lieutenant, you are looking at the only Starfleet cadet who ever beat the no-win scenario. How? I reprogrammed the simulation so it was possible to rescue the ship. What? He cheated. I changed the conditions of the test. Got a commendation for original thinking. I don't like to lose. Then you never faced that situation. Faced death. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. Director Spock, it's two hours. Are you ready? Right on schedule, Admiral. Just give us your coordinates and we'll beam you aboard. All right. I don't like to lose. Let's move on to Wrath of Khan, you know, because um, now, for me, I mean, I, and I think we all, love Star Trek the motion picture, big time. And I love that the film has found new love in the intervening years. Um, I remember when Jim and I, when we interviewed uh, Alan Dean Foster uh, uh, a couple of years ago, <clears throat> we talked about Star Trek The Motion Picture, some of which he could not talk about because of legal reasons. But um, I think even he was happy that over the years, the film has, you know, garnered more, more you know, more, more love and affection and respect. And I always love the fact that in any franchise, same thing with the Bond movies, um, <clears throat> I think if a franchise goes on for a long period of time, every now and then you have to change up, or a TV series too, every now and then, every few episodes, you have to change up what kind of story it is. You know, some can be a little more humorous, some can be a little darker, and I love how the first Star Trek film was hardcore science fiction of the Asimov, Ray Bradbury sort. Um, <clears throat> uh, Search for Spock is probably the most 
in tone with the TV series. The Voyage Home is social satire. Star Trek V Final Frontier, a lot of people want to forget it, justifiably so, but it's got a couple of scenes in there that, that no, it's got a couple of scenes in there that, 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 that pull at the heartstrings. Um, uh, and the Undercover Country is just, you know, like a political thriller in the guise of a Star Trek movie. I mean, it's the package, it's the Manchurian candidate, you know, in space. And Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, I always thought was cool because basically it's a submarine thriller. It's uh, the enemy below, it's um, run silent, run deep. You know, and I love how they made a different kind of movie. They decided to do an action suspense thriller, uh, but with a lot of great character stuff in there. And I remember, I remember um, uh, every now and then on a good day in Willingboro, New Jersey, if the reception was just right and you didn't have cable, you could get Channel Seven from New York. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> and I remember one. I remember one Friday night or Saturday night. It was on the news, and they were talking to some of the first people who came out of Wrath of Khan. And there was this one guy. You know, uh, he was oh yeah, and this one it actually had a plot, it had a story. Oh, <laughs> now I thought, now I thought the first film had a plot and a story too. I thought it was great, but I think Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan definitely set the franchise and relaunched Star Trek because, contrary to popular belief, I mean, people always say if just all the Harry Potter fans want to go see this movie, it'll be a success. If all the James Bond fans, well, the truth is, you kind of have to reach for the non-fans too especially now, you know, to justify a $150, $200 million budget and then advertising. So for a film to be really successful, it has to be, God, I hate using this phrase, has to have crossover appeal. And I think Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan was one of the first, well, it was the first Star Trek film and one of the first genre films of the 80s, you know, besides E.T., that just pulled in everybody of all ages you know, um, I remember, I mean, my parents didn't give a damn about Star Trek. Neither did my brother, Harold. Uh, uh, but everybody loved that freaking movie. Uh, everybody. Um, older people, younger people, kids. Everybody loved Wrath of Khan. It, it, that was just amazing. So that's, you know, my bl- blow. I mean, the movie itself blew me away. But the effect that it had on the public probably blew me away even more. Well, I think it, it stands alone as a Star Trek movie. I mean, you can, you can. It's an entry movie. Even if you didn't know Star Trek, if you didn't particularly like Star Trek, you could get into this movie and watch it. And I, I introduce friends now to this movie all the time who haven't seen it before, um, mm-hmm. because you don't need to know. Everything is fleshed out for you in the movie. You don't need to have watched the original series, or you can yeah. come into it and it's it's built so beautifully as its own little self-contained um, story and character study. Um, yeah. yeah, I was reading an article, I can't remember where it was published, but it was saying Star Trek is best when it's dealing with death and mortality. Um, mm-hmm. And okay. part of the thing, you know, I remember seeing it in the theaters and like, you know, Kirk was one of my first heroes growing up um, and enjoying the movie for what it was as a science fiction movie. But even now, like looking back on it, there's the scene in the Genesis cave where Carol Marcus asks him, you know, what are you feeling? Tell me what you're feeling. And he gives this soliloquy, you know, there, there's a man I haven't, there's a man out there I haven't seen in 15 years who's trying to kill me and you show me a son um, who gladly help him. You know, I'm, I'm old, worn out. Um, that to me is the single best piece of acting in the entire Star Trek canon. And it's only like two or three lines, but that has resonated from the time up till now because it's Kirk facing his mortality. And, it, you know, you see it as a kid and you like you get it, Kobayashi Maru, he's never faced the no-win scenario. But as you get older in life and you watch that scene again and again, 
um, it resonates a lot more. And that that movie is, you know, I, I don't like using the word timeless, but it really is. Um, I mean, it it holds up well, even you know, forty years later. Yeah, I, I would like to take this uh, opportunity to offer Mr. Carl Scott uh, a public apology. For um, what? <laughs> um, you know, when Star Trek The Motion Picture came out, I was 12 years old, and I was so excited that Star Trek was back, but with what my 12-year-old brain, you know, processed as, you know, Star Wars special effects. It's like, wow, Star Trek, mm-hmm. but with, like, the good special effects. And um, <laughs> I loved... I loved <laughs> I, I loved uh, um, I loved the Star Trek the Motion Picture when it came out. Uh, happily uh, consumed all the the Happy Meals at McDonald's, and if anybody remembers the Klingonese phrase "Ooh McDonald's," they remember, <laughs> they remember the commercials for the Star Trek the Motion Picture Happy Meals. But when Wrath of Khan came out. I was a dumb, stupid 15-year-old, and um, I, I, I instantly glommed on to Khan as that's the way to make a Trek movie. Look, there's phasers, and there's battles, and there's that Star Trek, and I, I, I admit here publicly that I turned on Star Trek The Motion Picture for a number of years. Um, mm. Carl defended it every time I did. I referred to it as uh, Star Trek The Motion Sickness, Star Trek The Slow Motion. I remember that. And uh, Carl was like, no, nah, man, it's great, it's great. And you know, now that I've got like you know some water under the bridge, I uh, I, I now resent these chowder heads. I had a friend. <laughs> I had a friend who criticized uh, Superman Returns when it came out in 2006, and and I was like, why? You know, I mean, I can understand people criticizing Superman Returns for you know it's a 200 million dollar fan film. It's it's this that or the other thing. His main gripe with Superman Returns was Superman didn't punch anyone. <laughs> that was that was I realized I, I that was my you know that was my you know Luke looking at his own robot hand and then looking down at Darth Vader's robot arm you know staring into the abyss moment where I went holy crap I was that kid I was this guy, but I was, I was that way back in 1982 going, yeah, Star Trek The Motion Picture didn't have any, like, phasers or photons or anything in it. There wasn't any space battles. <laughs> hmm. And uh, so, Carl, I'm sorry you were right, and for a brief, shining moment, I was wrong. <laughs> well, I, 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 will, I will say this, though. Um, first of all, uh, thank you. <laughs> but that being said, uh, when I think about Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan one of the first things that I think about remembering about that movie was wow it is so cool actually seeing the Enterprise get ripped down the side true, true, you know because after I'm an old school Star Trek fan you know since I was in 7th grade and Every time it's, you know, well, you know, the shields are down to this many percent and somebody's telling you everything that's going on, but you never get to see it. So I was actually right. happy to see, you know, those battles and actually see the Enterprise getting ripped from stem to stern. I thought that was very cool. But uh, but again, the none of that means anything without, you know, basically... Nothing means anything without any stakes. Nothing means anything without any characters in that situation 
that you you know really care about um and so yeah i i appreciated you know and again as people would say being older you know uh, i think about kirk on the bridge when he's trying to figure out the thing about the prefix code and he takes out his little glasses I, I have <laughs> yeah. a set of those little foldable glasses where, you know, you open them up, you fold them up, slide so them up. Yeah. You know, I have a set of those now just to, you know, as a as a pair of uh, cheaters. And I'm just like, yeah, I get it. And every now and then, just like Kirk, you probably go, Damn. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. the, uh, um, uh, the, this is just a weird side pop culture note. I, a couple years ago, I, I wrote and drew a, a three-issue Betty and Veronica miniseries for Archie Comics. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people, given the fact that I'm known for drawing, you know, rather, you know, beautiful women, people were like, oh, this is right. Adam's trying to jumpstart the apocalypse. Um, <laughs> right, right. And I actually did a very nice, you know, PG-rated Archie miniseries, but there was a moment in there that no one has ever caught in the third issue because they're trying to raise money to save Pops. I was trying to do the whole, you know, um, you know, Pops is going to be taken over by Starbucks and, you know, Betty and Archie and the guys are trying to raise the money, but I was turning it on its ear. I was trying to play against all the tropes. And they're sitting at the final fundraiser the day before the, the thing. It's in the school gym, and they've got that paper ther- thermometer. And... <laughs> They're, they're, you know, this all being organized by Betty, and she's sitting on the bleachers in the middle, and if she got, she's got two characters sitting in front of her, she's got three characters sitting beside her, and then standing off to the left is Archie with his arms folded, and she said, and, and the character that's sitting in front of Betty, I think it was Midge, uh, says, we're not going to make it, are we? And Betty looks over at Archie with his arms folded, and Archie shakes his head, no. And it was the Sulu Kirk you know, yep. David moment. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Not a, Very cool. Not a single reader or fan went, wait a minute, that's from Rathacon. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. But, uh, Very cool. Uh, Brilliant. Uh, the, uh, 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 I, I, you know, I, I agree with Carl. It's like the, the, you know, it's like when there's, when there's high stakes, that's when everything gets great. And, um, you know, on his comment about the Enterprise getting jacked up, I hate it when you get to the end of the movie and the character looks like they just stepped out of Savile Row. You know, um, <laughs> right. nothing. nothing's better than, like, you know, Luke Skywalker at the end of Empire Strikes Back looking like he's been dragged behind a truck. Um, Indy at the end of Raiders literally having been dragged behind a truck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like I remember a, a, a friend commenting that how nice Indy looked at the end of Indy um, at Crystal Skull. Going, it's like I she she was pissed. She hated the whole movie, and she was like, like, oh, I guess this is the amazing restorative dry cleaning powers of the Amazon River because. <laughs> and I, yeah, the yeah. fact that you know Enterprise has more than a black eye at the end, and you know, it's, yeah, you're right because it's 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 the budget. You can't. You can't mess up the, 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 the model for the TV show just for one episode. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that you can actually completely annihilate a model for, a, you know, like a very expensive model for uh, the feature films. And, and, the, and the fact that at the beginning, not even the beginning, for the entirety of, uh, of the, uh, Star Trek Three, the Enterprise has, you know, uh, plates 
you know, welded over the damaged hull throughout the... It's, hmm. it's, it's actually yeah. got scars for the entire film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like that. <clears throat> yeah, awesome. The other thing about hey. Star Trek, too, okay. is... And, and I'm glad, you know, uh, we, we've touched... Uh, the, this, the scene that Keith mentions is one of the great quiet moments in, in, in the whole of Summer of 82 and also in all Star Trek canon. And then also little little things like the you know I remember the entire theater getting a good laugh out of Kirk putting on his glasses going damn because you know <laughs> the kids mm-hmm. thought it was funny to laugh at him the adults thought it was funny because they recognized it yeah yep um, mm-hmm. but also so for all those quiet moments and cool moments I also have to just give a quick nod to if I have to think of the single loudest most explosive most sustained they heard it up the block moment of audience cheering the enterprise rising up behind them, the reliant and yeah. yeah 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 uh, yeah, I mean, yeah i you know i saw michael jackson on the victory tour i saw prince on the purple rain tour i saw bruce springsteen <laughs> on born born in the usa i have never se- heard that much noise come out of that few <laughs> just a couple hundred people but it exploded like the and keith knows the theater i'm talking about the post road cinema in westport yeah. connecticut they probably yeah. had to mm-hmm. fix the roof at the end of Star Trek, <laughs> run because it just cool. every time because I saw I saw the movie probably four times in that theater. Every time I saw it, and even when the, you know, the last few weeks of its run, when the theater when the theater was you know a third full, even still that shot, mm. um, it, no, I can't think of another shot in 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 all the movies that makes an audience just mm. go berserk. And it's just it's, yeah. it gives me I, I got go- I'm looking at goosebumps right now thinking of that moment. Uh it's just save here. Yeah, it makes yeah. everyone uh, happy. I've got a little challenge for you, Sark. A new recruit. It's a tough case, but I want him treated in the usual manner. Train him for the games. Let him hope for a while and blow him away. You got it. I've been hoping you'd send me somebody with a little bit of guts. What kind of program is he? He's not any kind of program, Sark. He's a user. A user? That's right. He pushed me in the real world. Somebody pushes me, I push back, so I brought him down here. big master control program everybody's been talking about. Sit right there. Make yourself comfortable. Remember the time we used to spend playing chess together? That isn't going to do you any good, Flynn. I'm afraid. Stop. Please. You realize I can't allow this. How are you going to run the universe if you can't even answer a few unsolvable problems? Huh? Come on, big fella. Let's see what you got. I'd like to go against you and see what you're made of. You know, you don't look a thing like your pictures. I'm warning you. You're entering a big error, Flynn. I'm gonna have to put you on the game, Fred. Game? You want games? I'll give you games. So let's, uh... 
now shimmy into Tron, okay? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, does anybody else want to take the lead on this one? I will. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Mr. <laughs> Computer Programmer here. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, the, the thing that I remember uh, most about this, of course, um, I had just graduated from high school in 81, and I had just started developing an interest in um, computers in <laughs> like my junior year of high school. That's right. I have and something to add to this when you get done. Say, say again? <laughs> I said I remember this now. I have something to add to this when you get done. Go ahead. Okay. So, and my original uh, thoughts about you know computers and things were more on the software side you know it was like hey you know I, it's, it's kind of like a car i just want to drive it i don't know a whole lot about all the internal workings and i wasn't was never a gearhead but at some point uh between junior year and when this movie came out i became fascinated because having like separate graphics cards in a computer was kind of like a new deal mm -hmm. and it was really fascinating to me as i started reading articles and everything and i was you know be looking at these little boards and i'm like man they can like reproduce all these cool graphics on this little board or whatever and so because tron was you know kind of one of the first if not maybe the first uh movie to really focus on computer graphics and i was just falling in love with all that stuff tron was the very first movie that i actually remember literally counting down the days until it was released and the day that it was released i i dubbed it tron day and <laughs> i could not wait to get into the theater because i was i was all over that because of like i said just kind of getting into uh, the whole idea of computers and computer graphics for the first time. It was fascinating to me. Hmm. I don't remember. Did we see that together? Um, you know, I don't recall either. I, mean, I, I, thought, I, I, I remember first seeing it at the Fox, but I don't remember. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought we saw it together at the Fox. But I don't know whether that was the first or second time, because we would actually see some movies by ourselves, and then we would go back when they went to, like, you know, when the Fox had admission for a dollar or something like that we would see it again there mm -hmm. uh, but i don't remember but oh anyway the thing i wanted to add is yeah i remember when you were um <clears throat> when we were at lca when we were in school and mm -hmm. back when we had the um tandy computers trash uh, 80s <laughs> right with the um cassette drives and whatnot oh, yeah. mm -hmm. and I, I remember you when you were first starting to I remember you sitting me down and explaining all of this to me and me maybe getting 30 or 40% of it pretending to get another 20% of it <laughs> and then just you know saying I'm sorry you know an another 20 is like eh I I you lost me there but I remember your passion about it and I remember I think I had wanted to see Tron simply based on your passion for the new burgeoning technology you know, because, um, I mean, knowing Adam and Carl it, it is great because they have actually clued me into some things that I might not otherwise be as aware of. I mean, I remember Adam sending me issues of um, Hellboy years before it became a film, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen years before it became a film. And we'll leave that one alone because we had a big, long argument over that. I don't want to go there. <laughs> um, 
Uh, he sent me other stuff. I mean, I've, you know, sent him um, the, uh, uh, the the story sessions between uh, Lucas and Spielberg and Kasdan when they were hashing out Raiders and the Frank Darabont, you know, uh, unused Raiders uh, script. But anyway, so th- these guys have kept me in the loop about, sur- huh? I'm sorry, what? Hey, Craig, speaking of which, you know, yeah. remember when you sent me that, that, the, that the unused Darabont script and you were yeah. like, I don't know if this is legit or not, blah, 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 blah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, this is this is going to be me, you know, sort of doing the backdoor brag. I had it confirmed. Oh, very cool. Thank you. Yeah, it was sent to me yeah. by someone that I trusted, but you still never know. Okay, very cool. Awesome. Yeah, yeah but, but you're not letting me backdoor brag. I went and asked Frank Darabont. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, you said someone. It could have been somebody who knew Darabont, who knew Darabont. Okay, gotcha. Cool. Yeah. So he wasn't pissed that you had it. <laughs> No, actually, he uh, uh, he and I are acquaintances. He's a comic book art collector, and yeah. I've actually had dinner with him several times. Uh huh. Cool. Great. Um, so I was actually able to uh, uh, email him and say, "Is is this yours?" <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and and he confirmed it. So. Oh, very cool. Oh, by the way, you just reminded me. I have something for you. Okay, my little backdoor brag. Um, you know, I interviewed Tab Murphy. Uh, uh, the, the writer of Gorillas in the Mist and 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 uh, Atlantis and Diddy's Hunchback and Tarzan and a few others. And the last time I went to L.A., he actually invited me over to his place and we had dinner with him and his girlfriend. And uh, he actually found some Rolling Rock, you know, because I mentioned that Rolling Rock was kind of a local Pennsylvania beer, and you know, she so got some of that. But anyway, he actually um, you know, he's done a lot of comic book uh, 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 adaptations, you know, Batman, Superman, um, was it uh, Year Zero? And uh, he worked on Thundercats for years. And uh, anyway, he actually, um, he's very familiar with you. And he actually signed uh, a uh, Batman um, um, mini poster to you. And it just said, badass. (laughs) You are badass. So I've been meaning to send it to you, and I will. But I still have it. Okay, so that's my my backdoor brag. (laughs) Um, You know, the funny thing is I remember seeing Tron... Uh, at that same Fox Theater, and to explain to the other people uh, listening, uh, the Fox Theater was this little two-screen cinema behind the Willingboro Plaza in New Jersey, where we lived. And um, interesting story, um, uh, Academy Award-winning composer Michael Giacchino is actually one of us. This, and I'm still pissed about this. Go ahead. Go ahead. Tell the story. <laughs> I'm still angry about uh, this. <laughs> you know, the next the, the next town over from um, the next town over from Willingboro is Edgewater Park. Mm-hmm. And um, Michael Giacchino is from Edgewater Park. And the reason why I know this is I was looking at his IMDb one day, uh, curious about what his next projects were, because I've been a fan of his music since the Medal of Honor uh, video game scores in the late 90s and early aughts. Which you first sent me, which is how I was first became familiar with him. Yeah. yeah. And uh, to this day, if I'm drawing Captain America or Nick Fury or something, I'm listening to, G- to Giacchino World War II stuff. Um, but I look at his bio, and it says that he was born on August 3rd, 1967, um, at um, Riverside, in Riverside, New Jersey. I was born May 5th, 1967, in Riverside, New Jersey. There's only that one hospital. Mm-hmm. And so I, I hunted him down at a San Diego Comic-Con. I didn't hunt him down. I was having breakfast with my wife uh, uh, in a restaurant. We saw him walk by because he was wearing his little, you know, um, Night Stalker hat. Mm-hmm. And um, I ran outside. I stopped Michael Giacchino. I go, hey, man, big fan of your stuff. We're from the same, you know, place. And I said, I'm from Florence, New Jersey. He's like, oh, I'm from Edgewater Park. I said, yeah, I know. I read your IMDb. I said, you know, we probably saw 
Road Warrior, Blade Runner. You know, we probably saw all these movies at the same time at the same theater. And he says, I said, what was that little round theater behind the, the Willingboro Plaza? He said, the Fox Theater. And I said, yeah, that was it. And he goes, and Michael Giacchino says, I've got a brick from that from when they demolished it. Hmm. He actually he actually collected a brick. But really funny, there's a guy uh, in California who makes replicas of class, like scale replicas of classic um, road signs. You know, welcome to Las Vegas, or you know, the Holiday Inn with that, you know, that sort of bent, you know, line with the with the little star, the little not star, little little arrow at the bottom, stuff like that. Um, one day on Twitter, Giacchino posted that uh, um, uh, he hired that guy to make an exact replica of the entire Fox Theater. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and and it was like and like I'm, it's, it's him and Giacchino they're both wearing masks because it was in the first year of the pandemic mm-hmm. and they're holding it up and this, this bizarre wave of nostalgia hit me because I was going I saw movies there you know but it was <laughs> it was these two giants holding the Fox Theater and the guy had gone so far as to actually put two movies Two movies in the uh, in in the in the little marquee sign, you know, with uh-huh. the little replaceable letters. Every mm-hmm. third letter was red, even though they were supposed to all be right, black. Right, right, yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and it was it was Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the second feature was The Rescuers. And, Very cool. Uh, I'll send it to you, Craig, when I get back home to my computer. Um, I'll send it to both of you guys, uh, and. That when 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 you hear Craig or Carl or I talking about the Fox Theater, it was this homey little thing behind the local plaza that we saw so many of these movies at. And as as, as Craig mentioned earlier, not only is it the film that is you know that looms large in your own personal legend, it's it's when you saw it, it's where you saw yeah, it, yeah. it's who you saw it with, and. Um, uh, I just wanted to sort of give a little background for the the, the, the Fox Theater in Willingboro. Uh, may it rest in peace. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. I mean, the Fox is where I saw um, Live and Let Die, uh, the world's greatest athlete, the deep, the golden voyage of Sinbad, Tron, <laughs> Colton Pond, uh, uh, a zillion other movies. Um, I first saw The Spy Who Loved Me there. Uh, and, and the thing was, the part that pisses me off and I'm still angry about is that I remember when they demolished the Fox, I was living in you know Philadelphia, I had gone over to Willingboro, I guess I had gone to visit my brother, or, or it was a high school reunion or something, I don't remember, but I said, let me drive by where the Fox used to be, and they had just demolished it, and there were thousands of bricks, and something said, why don't you go over there and snag one of those, and I didn't do it, <laughs> and when Adam told me that story, I was so angry at myself, <laughs> oh man, and to this day, Every time I think of that, oh, every time I see Michael Giacchino's name on, on, on the marquee, I was like, yeah, I love that guy. And yeah, I freaking hate that guy <laughs> at the same time that's why, because I crazy. failed that's why to get a brick. That's why he's got an Oscar and you don't. Right, exactly. He's, right. He's, he's, <laughs> he's got the right thoughts. All, exactly. He just you know, Follow your instinct. I've learned, I've learned a long time ago to listen to your gut, man. Oh, so now, to this day, yeah. Hmm? When I saw... When I saw Tron, it was a double theater. It was a excuse me. It was a double feature at the Fox. Okay, with what? Okay, with with uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, really? Uh, nice, nice. Because you know we're all enough to remember back in those days, really successful films got re released. Yeah. And uh, 
so I was like, holy crap, I can go see this new movie, Tron, that looks unbelievable, and, like, my favorite movie from last year, or, like, all in the same afternoon, count me in. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I loved Tron. I, I just thought it was, like, you know... And what was was amazing is that, like, we look back now on the summer of 82 as this sort of, like, amazing landmark summer. But I remember at the time going, you know, because, again, I was just 15, I'm going, this is just what, what movies are. This is, this is like, this is just yet another year, you know? Like, mm-hmm. like 83 is going to be like this. I bet 84 will be like, you know, it was just, mm-hmm. it had become so amazing that it was, it was common. Yeah, and uh, we did not know that we were in the middle of um, a landmark year for the you know wonderful, wonderful films that went on to be classics. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that, uh, unfortunately, my en- enduring memory of that day was that the um, the film during Raiders, the film got stuck in the gate and it and it burst into flames. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> At which scene did this happen? It happened in the in the in the in the in the gunfight in the Raven Bar. So oh, okay, it's like when a fire broke like, out. <laughs> I thought it was like, oh, they've done some, they've added some effects. Yeah, like, <laughs> that was my first thing. It was like it was like Indy, you know, thinking he just got shot, surrounded by flames. He freezes, and all of a sudden, the whole thing just goes blah. And <laughs> and I was like. It's, it's an interesting aesthetic choice. Um, I like that the previous way. Kind of like the scene uh, in Gremlins 2, where, where the film breaks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, exactly, you know. Um, but anyways, it, it's, uh, I, I just, I, I remember Tron, you know, just feeling like the latest in a string of, of like, well, this is what movies are now. Hmm. You know, this is, this is our, this is, this is, this is, this is normal. This, this, this type of thing. And, um, you know whether I was right or wrong is irrelevant. It just it just felt I felt comfortable going to the movies that year. Like I, I always knew that I was going to come out of a movie theater with with something positive. Nice, nice. Well, it's kind of funny. Uh, speaking of double features, let's move on to oh, can I, can I Tron? Oh, 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 yeah, please, please do. So I got, I got two things about Tron. One is um, my oldest brother, who's 11 years older than me, saw it with a bunch of friends of his, and somewhere during the course of the night, one of his buddies did a couple of lines of cocaine. So when they <laughs> oh, came out of the movie, God. Oh, my um, Lord. <laughs> they're flying down I-91 here in Connecticut, and the guy's, like, zipping in out of traffic, screaming, oh, no. I'm in a right cycle! I'm in a right cycle! Scaring the crap out of everybody else in the car. Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, my God. So there's that. Wow. The second okay. thing about yeah. Tron, and, and Jim and I wasted a lot of quarters at this place, and I'm going to digress a little ah, bit. Ah, okay. Jim knows where I'm going. Yeah, so I know where you're going. Well, I think we know where you're going, too. <laughs> that had a game tie-in. And of yeah. course, it was the you know the Tron uh, video game. I had, Jim knows how much I geek out about. This. I actually have one in my basement. Uh, nice. And the there's this guy in town named Arnie K, whose family owned like Baldwin or Bally, um, you know, big pool tables, ton of money. And he decided he was going to make this arcade in Westport, and it was going to have 50 games. And the town fought him tooth and nail. It was ridiculous battle. He threatened to bring in Hell's Angels at one point. Paid his taxes in pennies. <laughs> 
um, all kinds of stuff. But he finally built this thing, and it was gorgeous. It looked like a Vegas casino. It had um, maroon carpets. Everything was polished brass, light wood, little um, little tiny um, you know amber lights. Every game had its own little kiosk. And two of the games they had in there that I played more than anything were the original Tron that had light cycles, grid bugs, uh, tanks, and the MCP cone, and then also discs of Tron. And um, that one I don't remember. And tying that in, that was the first time you could like you could see the movie, but then you could go out of the movie and you could play the games from the movie on this arcade game and dump a crap ton of quarters. There's a bar here in um, in New Haven called Barcade uh, that has an original <laughs> Tron machine in it that I hold. Usually I hold all top ten scores on it. They actually unplugged it and replugged it in, and I have to get down there to reestablish my confidence. <laughs> um, but there's a, a company called Arcade One Up that made a retro version of the game, and it's still pretty much arcade size. Um, but it has the original Tron and discs of Tron as well. Um, but Sweet. being blown away by the movie, and then being able to go like right into Arnie's place and be able to play those games, you know, on an arcade machine was something was like a time you never thought you know would be possible. It was just like mind blowing how cool it would be to like, all right, now I'm immersive in this thing in a game about the movie that's about. You know the games. I mean, nowadays that's no big deal yeah. to you know young people who go to the movies and come home and play the game on their phone. <laughs> but back then, that was almost like an Alice in Wonderland aspect of you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, Jim and I spent a lot of quarters in that place all damn summer. All well, yeah. yeah. And and and, now. and Keith touched on this fight that Arnold K had with Westport. I mean, it it took him a couple of years, I think. Yeah, to get that place open, like he was like he wow. was Willy Wonka for everybody under high school age. Like we all loved him, and our parents all hated him. Um, and, <laughs> he kept and, that place going until the mid '90s. I think console games finally did him in. Yeah, but he had a good he had like a good twelve year run with that place. Plus, he built the deli, um, and the arcade had the arcade. Then there was a pool room, but you had to be over either sixteen or eighteen to go into the pool room. And there was a sweet shop attached to it. And it was actually, you know, everybody had this parade of horribles about what this thing was going to be. But if you look it up, um, look up Arnie's place, Westport, Connecticut, it was absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And then next to it, he built this international deli that had phenomenal food. Um, I mean, wow. it, it, they made the town look like a bunch of idiots. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, see, hey, now I have we... to... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go right ahead, Carl. No, I was just going to say, um, mentioning arcades, of course, that would have been back at the time when uh, uh, Craig and I worked at a restaurant in Starbridge and Clothier, one of the anchor stores for uh, this mall that was there where we were. And Burlington, Center. Burlington Center, which unfortunately is gone, uh, if you didn't know, Craig. Uh, or Adam. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I checked it out. Yeah, the last time I was home, I went there and took pictures of the big hole in the ground. It was so sad. <laughs> um, but the thing about uh, you know the arcades was right in the dead center of this mall was an arcade called Spaceport. And and I remember yep. going in and doing the same thing, going down there and playing the Tron game. I think the two games that I played most were, well, I'd say three were Tron, uh, good old-fashioned Asteroids, and Spy Hunter were the ones that I used to go <laughs> down there and play. And uh, the, the horrible thing about it all was the fact that working there in the mall, working in the restaurant, we got paid every week 
So every Friday, most of the time, before I even went home, I just walked <laughs> down to Spaceport and wasted a bunch of money on the Tron game. Uh, but yeah, I I love that place. I spent probably yes, way sure. too much time in it. But yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> Here's how I know um, what a what a cool movie. Oh, wait. oh, oh, oh wait, sorry. Wait. Yeah, I think Adam oh, had, had uh, actually deferred to Carl a little earlier. I definitely want to hear sorry what he has that. to say. Well, no, I, d- I just wanted to like you know s- ask one more general Tron trivia question of the of the the, the fine gentleman we have here. Um, does anybody remember what Flynn's uh, password was? Oh, oh man, oh, give me a sec. Um, oh shit! God damn it! I'm going to kick myself yep. for not for not remembering this. Yeah, okay, I don't Marlin. remember offhand. Wasn't it Reindeer Flotilla? Oh, God, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow, damn. You know, oh, you know, oh man, I, 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 I feel so terrible. Like I, I worked at a, um, at a restaurant for years uh, uh, run by a guy named Steven Starr. He owned like 30 restaurants in Philadelphia. And he, he was in the entertainment industry for a while. Um, and he knew that I was you know into films and was writing. And... Uh, he opened up a restaurant. Uh, he was opening up a restaurant called El Rey, and he said, "Do you know where the name comes from?" And I said, "Oh my God, where is that?" And I brainstormed it for half a day, and I couldn't, I couldn't remember. And he said, "From the getaway." That's the name of the town they were going to, and I was like, oh, "I hate you," <laughs> <laughs> because I should have known that. And Ranger Flotilla is the same exact thing. I should have freaking known that. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take it up. Uh, back even a, a, a little further, Carl. Do you hmm. remember uh, um, Francis Syndrome? Francis Syndrome. Yes. One time in school, you and I were, and remember, kids. This is before the internet. This is the one you had <laughs> libraries in your brains. Um, Carl, <laughs> Carl and I were talking about the great 1976 science fiction film Logan's Run. Logan's Run, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fr- and, Francis Syndrome. I know where you're going. Go ahead. And uh, Logan, Logan Five had a partner. He was a cop who hunted down right. runners, people who had turned thirty and not not given themselves in. Right. Um, Richard Jordan. Yeah. Richard Jordan. Um, and who? Richard Jordan, who raised the Titanic. Um, right. The, uh, <laughs> but uh, and set Jack Ryan on his. Uh, yep. To the Red October. <laughs> um. But we we were sitting around at lunch one day at our school, and the three of us could not, for the life of us, remember the name yeah, of Logan, Logan Five's partner. And it yeah. clawed at our brains. <laughs> Nothing was accomplished for the rest of the day. We were all yeah, <laughs> and, I, and we were just kind of like, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. And I remember I got home and Carl. Carl called me around eight thirty that night, and I picked up the phone, and all I heard was Carl scream, "Francis Seven! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So no, hello, yep. no, how you doing? And <laughs> for the for the remainder of my life, that whole thing where you cannot remember the the the, the, the memory, the name, the place, the person, yes. the candy, the food, and it's right at the front of your brain. I've, I've <laughs> Carl to this day. I've called it the Francis syndrome. Oh goodness! <laughs> cool, very cool, awesome. Well, I definitely want to move along, <clears throat> and this one is triggered by Adam talking about double features, and 
for me, one of the greatest double features ever. Um, two movies that both opened on June 25th. Uh, Megaforce also opened on June 25th, <laughs> but this, not, this is not one of them. Uh, <laughs> Blade Runner and The Thing. You know, yeah, well, that's a delayed reaction there. <laughs> Blade Runner and The Thing both opened on June 25th, and both crashed and burned at the box office. I mean, critics actually tore both of those movies apart. Uh, say, I remember talk, people talking about The Thing being nihilistic and gory and mean-spirited and Blade Runner being style over substance, and they, they did so poorly at the box office. I saw them both for the first time as a double feature maybe two or three weeks later. I know I'm human. And if you were all these things, then you'd just attack me right now. So some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to. But it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. There's a storm hitting us in six hours. We're going to find out who's who. Um, I think it was at the Millside Twin in... Was it? it? Riverside, yeah, in Riverside, New Jersey. And um, I had wanted to see both. Uh, there were so many other movies that had come out within the past couple of weeks. I mean, Conan the Barbarian had opened uh, a few weeks earlier. Um, so had The Road Warrior. And I, I went to see those opening weekend. Blade Runner and The Thing weren't really around long enough. But that Saturday afternoon, I went in, saw Blade Runner and The Thing. It's a double feature. And was blown away. And the thing was, regardless of what you saw in the ads and the film trailers, everybody who was in that audience... And it was a cross-section audience. There were younger people, older people, multi-ethnic, um, mostly guys, actually, now that I think of it. Uh, not a lot of women there that day. But nobody expected either of those movies to be what they were. Like I said, I mean, and I guess it's because back then you didn't see everything in the months leading up, you know, in the trailers and and, and, and behind the scenes stuff and all that um, and people dropping clues and leaks. So all we had was the stuff we saw. Oh, and by the way, <clears throat> last night, one of the things I was doing last night, I was digging up old 1982 uh, Entertainment Tonight and Siskel and Ebert episodes <laughs> on YouTube. Okay. Because I distinctly remember the Entertainment Tonight when they were doing their science, their summer of 1982 preview, and I remember seeing the quick little previews that they had for Blade Runner and the Thing, and in Blade Runner it was the scene where you know uh, Leon slaps Deckard's gun, you know, out of his hand, and you know, and he's you know, you know, um, I was born. Blah, 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 blah. How long do I live? I don't know. Uh, or, or what do you say? Uh, 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 so many years, more than you. Bam, and his fist goes into the side of the vehicle. You know, I, I remember that distinctly. And of course, you saw the, the the spinners and everything. So yeah, that will be the audio clip from the entertainment epi- entertainment tonight episode. Will be at the beginning of this you know podcast, and the Cisco and Hubert thing. Will some of that will be in there too? But I, that's all we pretty much saw. We didn't know exactly what the films were about. So sitting there watching Blade Runner and the Thing, and I think the Thing was first. I mean, every 10 minutes, people in the audience were shouting out, what the? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in the thing. Like, you know, um, 
you know, when the legs crop out of the head and start walking across. I mean, Dawes wasn't the only one who said, you gotta be effing <laughs> kidding. <laughs> you know, people in the audience were saying the same thing. And during Blade Runner, too. Because, um, yeah, nobody, you know, like when Rooker Howard's head just goes slamming through, <laughs> slamming through the wall. <laughs> you know, nobody expected either of those movies. Both of them rated R. You know, so they were both pretty intense in a family-friendly summer of Poltergeist and Star Trek and E.T. and Tron and, and even, even Firefox. Of course, Conan the Barbarian had opened that year, too. So I would say Conan, Blade Runner, and The Thing were, for me, just these awesome examples of how a few years prior, you know, Star Wars and Empire had made genre filmmaking popular again. Um, and then like Conan and Blade Runner and The Thing decided to do the, for lack of a better term, I don't mean to say this in any kind of derogatory manner, they wanted to do genre for adults. And that's what those films did. And Blade Runner and The Thing, yeah, probably the greatest double feature I've ever seen in my life. Hey, um, Craig, uh, guys, I hope I'm not monopolizing things. No, 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 no. no. Okay. No, go ahead. Because I have to talk about, I have to talk about my dyslexic uh, Blade Runner thing double feature. Okay, please. Okay. Uh, at that time, like I said, I was about 15, uh, not about, I was 15. Uh, I would spend two <laughs> weeks every summer with my uncle and my aunt down in Maryland. I'm, for, I'm again, obviously from New Jersey. And it was two weeks that my mother could get me out of the house and drink freely. So I would spend time <laughs> with my uncle Bill and Annie Lane. And I, they knew I wanted to see this movie. So on that Friday, the day those two movies opened, they took me to a little theater in Randallstown, Maryland, dropped me off, and I watched Blade Runner. Cool. By myself. It's one of those theaters that had one aisle down the middle, and I found, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, found, I, found, I had an aisle seat, and I found the only broken seat in the theater. <laughs> so, my enduring memory of Blade Runner is that the entire film was done at a 45-degree Dutch angle. Because <laughs> I was I was leaning at a forty. I was like an old Batman episode, this, yeah. <laughs> this like Lorenzo Semple Batman TV show angle out yeah. into the aisle, and you know, completely, completely mind blown. Because I I just wanted to see this new sci fi movie that that Han Solo and Indiana Jones was in. As Craig <laughs> right. pointed out, you had no idea what you were in for, and mm-hmm. I just walked out of that movie just like almost like a different person. Would you step out for a few moments, Rachel? She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot one? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30 cross-referenced. It took more than 100 for Rachel, didn't it? She doesn't know. She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can it not know what it is? Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. Rachel is an experiment, nothing more. We began to recognize in them strange obsession. After all, they are emotionally inexperienced with only a few years in which to store up the experiences which you and I take for granted. If we gift them with the past, We create a cushion or pillow for their emotions, and consequently, we can control them better. Memories. You're talking about memories. Now. Yeah. 
two days later, the, the, the following Monday, my aunt takes me back to that exact same theater to see the other film at this, you know, at this duoplex or whatever you want to call it, uh, which was John Carpenter's The Thing. No, you weren't sitting in the same seat, were you? No, 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 no. Okay, right. <laughs> I wasn't sitting in any seat at all because they, my aunt dropped me off, and this is before cell phones. I had no idea. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't need to know my aunt and uncle's phone number. Okay, um, she dropped me off. I went to buy my ticket, and they said, "You're under seventeen. You can't get in." And I said, "You just let me see Blade Runner two days ago," and they said, "Well, that wasn't me." So I had to sit in the lobby of this theater <laughs> listening to John Carpenter's The Thing till my aunt came and picked me up two hours later. Jeez, that sucks. Oh, man. You think so? I mean, I'm sitting there in the theater. You think that, like, you know, every every 20 minutes there was a what-the-fuck moment. It's like, imagine sitting there yeah. and just, like, imagining, like, somebody just going, ah, ah, you got to be fucking kidding. Like, ah. what is going on in there? I was like, <laughs> it's like, that... That played on my 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 imagination and my fears way more than I think that if I'd seen it because I didn't get to see it until it came out on HBO, um, mm-hmm. and I was like going, "What did those? What goes with those sounds?" You know. <laughs> <laughs> I always. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I literally watch. I watch that every time I have to draw something scary. You know, like I put movies on while I'm drawing uh, familiar things because new stuff, you know, the news or watching new television shows or stuff like that will distract me. But I put in music or movies or TV shows that I've seen and heard a million times helps me get in the mood. And I, I do the thing every time I'm working on Hellboy or something like that. And <laughs> sitting there drawing while just listening to Hellboy or excuse me just listening to the thing that really takes me back to that that that, that time place memory because it's like yeah. you know cool. it's like I don't know that, that that's you know a dog with its head bursting open I just hear weird sounds uh, but anyways I wanted to, <laughs> yeah. I wanted I, that was one of my main stories that I wanted to tell when you invited me onto this podcast awesome 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 story uh, Jim, Keith, you guys want to chime in here? Uh, 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 Carl, any, any, I'll let Jim go first. <laughs> Blade Runner for me was uh, uh, I from from the first thirty seconds. I, I knew I was seeing something that I wasn't ready for, so that kind of s- saddled me in for the whole rest of it. Just the eye opening and the reflection of the Terrell building in the eye. Mm-hmm. It, it was kind of well, it was kind of like the opening of the of the Road Warrior. Like the, the, I learned everything I ever needed to know about montage from the opening of the Road Warrior, um, and Blade Runner didn't terrify me, but it scared me and had me on this weird edge the entire time. Um, I, I think, in a weird sense, Blade Runner scared me even more than the Thing because I knew the Thing was a horror movie, um, and Blade Runner very quickly became unreliable <laughs> as for what our tone is going to be right like i mean from from uh holden getting shot in the back or shot in the face and then shot in the back in the in the uh-huh. opening sequence like like those I, I very quickly realized that i couldn't trust these people <laughs> um and it made it actually a much more well i mean it was a singular experience there's nothing else i can compare to, to seeing blade runner on blade runner on opening weekend and you know i work in a film school now and when i tell students that i i mean of all the other movies i mentioned when i say that i saw blade runner on opening weekend jaws drop people are like envious of that 
Um, and then I tell him that, like, you know, you've all could have been there because there was plenty of room in every damn theater. Like, the, the three times I saw it in the theater, there was, well, was opening Saturday night was, was pretty full. But but there were still seats. And then, like, the other times I saw it, there was only, like, 12 people. Um hmm. Yeah, and then also just just that score. Like I'd heard electronic scores before uh, Apocalypse Now, where it was totally incongruous and kind of kept reminding me that we're not in 1969 or or whenever exactly that was supposed to take place. Like the score, Chariots of Fire, right? Uh, the year before, like this is the first time that electronic music felt appropriate, um, and and sort of show it, it i was a little surprised we hadn't had more of that in sci-fi movies yet and then it, it and it also surprised that there wasn't more immediately following but maybe just because i mean that score was how would we have to wait like 10 years before the actual real vangelo score was released yeah for, for so, so hey yeah i mean uh, but, quick, i'm still not ready for what blade runner did to me on opening weekend <laughs> i i have a quick interjection about electronic scores Okay. Um, mm-hmm. at, th- at this point, you know, like, and I agree entirely that, like, you know, the Blade Runner just, you know, opened up that world. Had any of us seen William Friedkin Sorcerer at this point? Yes. Hell yeah! 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 yeah. Dude! Because I only saw... Tangerine Dream action, baby, yeah. Yeah, I only saw it, like, the first time about five years ago when Patton Oswalt recommended Ooh. it on Twitter. And oh my God, yeah. You can't expect that. You can. I'm sorry, Craig. You can't expect a ten year old to like go see that when Star Wars and Smoking the Bandit are out. Um, of course, <laughs> but opening two days within each other uh, of each other. Yeah, yeah. But like you know, it's like I, I was stunned at at the the Tangerine Dream score in what was essentially a '70s film noir, and it being yeah. completely correct and appropriate and no other music would have appropriate worked. as hell yeah and so that's why his comment about um um about uh, blade runner's vangelis score uh, it reminded me please continue oh no okay uh who's it jim uh, uh uh carl uh keith i just i just remember from blade runner being the first thing because i jim and i are a few years younger than than some of you guys um at age 13 being the first like dystopian future movie that I'd ever seen it was the first like dark gritty sci-fi um, movie that kind of you know left you walking out of it like Jim said it like it messed you up um, and it stuck with you and you know it kind of set the stage because as we got further into the 80s with you know the Cold War ratcheting up and Reagan and, and uh, uh, Andropov before before Gorbachev and all of the post apocalyptic you know, shattered society, gang warfare, you know, messed up drug, you know, movies that came out after that, it kind of became, you know, a trope. But Blade Runner at 13 being the first, you know, the first really dark, because you're used to Star Trek where things are, you know, things are kind of cool in the future and, you know, everybody's more or less getting along. Being the first thing you walked out of, it's just like, holy crap. I mean, you're, you're kind of a little twitchy walking out of that thing, thinking about like, you know, how messed up it was. And it's kind of funny that right now Blade Runner took place in what was it, 2015? 2019. 2019? 2019. 
please. For, forgive me for disturbing you, but my son's life is in great danger. The plow has come early this year. Move your family. I must bid you good evening, Mrs. Mrs. Brisby. Brisby? Mrs. Jonathan Brisby? Why, yes. He was my husband. But how do you know about him? That is not important. I will say this. His name is not unknown in these woods. Please, sir. I'll do anything to save Timmy. Anything. There is a way. Go to the rats. take a little quick detour uh before we get to you know some of the more you know famous stuff like et i just kind of want to take a quick sidestep into the secret of nim which opened on july 2nd uh, uh 1982 and which for me has a lot of what we were talking about earlier uh personal significance personal relevance um uh my first year out of uh, school i went to a school called southeastern down in lakeland florida and i think in the first couple of years after you graduate, sometimes you have to decide what you don't want to do. And and, and I think that's normal. Uh, I, I think it's a myth that by the time you're 18 and by the time you graduate from high school, you have to know exactly what you want to do and, and you go into there. And that's, that's just not so. Um, I remember um, I went a year at Southeastern and then I went to the Art Institute of Philadelphia. I had always intended on being an illustrator. Uh, I used to draw my own comic books when I was growing up, um, and I guess that's one of the reasons why I gravitated and became friends with Adam, because I think to a certain degree Adam went down a certain life path that I thought of in my younger years, but by the time I went to the Art Institute of Philadelphia, this was the early 80s, and the reign, at that time, the reign of the illustrators in advertising and animation and what have you from the 50s and 60s and 70s had ended, and the new renaissance in illustration and animation, um, which in animation wouldn't really happen until um, The Little Mermaid and films like that and American Tale a few years later, and um, and comic books with so many of the popular 80s era comics, you know, like Watchmen and the, the, the renewed versions of uh, 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 The Punisher and, and characters like that. But um, at, at the time that I went to the Art Institute of Philadelphia, they were grinding out graphic designers which is not what I wanted to do. Yeah, I learned a lot, and there were fashion designers there and other people, and I learned a lot from them and became great friends with them, fell in love to this day. Fashion design and production design and film are, are, are two areas which fascinate me as much as film music. And um, 
I think part of that has to do with my time at the Art Institute. But, you know, the reign of the illustrators had ended, and The Secret of Nim opened at that time. And with The Secret of Nim, obviously, was a film that was done by Don Bluth. And Don Bluth was one of the young, new generation animators that had come into Disney. And he had studied under, apprenticed under the nine old men, you know. And for those who are not aware, just Google the phrase and, you know, you'll understand it. <laughs> I'm sure you guys know who the nine mm-hmm. old men are. But um, he had apprenticed under them uh, along with other guys like Tim Burton and... Um, 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 uh, the director of The Incredibles, uh, 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 Brad Bird, Bird, you know, and Burton and Bluth and a few others actually worked on uh, uh, The Fox and the Hound, which I think is an underrated Disney film. Maybe not the greatest film, but definitely underrated. Uh, Kurt Russell, we're talking the thing there. Uh, <laughs> but, um, and The Secret of Nim came along, and for me, it kind of was a, oh God, for lack of a better term, cliched phrase, light in the desert, <clears throat> that, this art form isn't dead yet and the film was uh, Don Bluth has started his own company uh, it was based in Ireland you know mainly for financial reasons and they did The Secret of Nim fantastic film to this day still one of my top two or three animated films of all time maybe even number one animated film of all time and um, that also movie poster by by Hildebrandt as well which I still have and uh it was even though it was not a financial success, it became a huge success on home video, and it was the film that Steven Spielberg saw, which made him want to talk to Bluth about doing an American Tale, and an American Tale was one of those films, along with The Little Mermaid, which triggered the Renaissance in animation, which came and they get The Little Mermaid and The Land Before Time, which was also Don Bluth, and then um, uh, 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 and, and other films as well. So for me, The Secret of Nim is not, again, there's that whole thing about, yeah, it's a great film in and of its own. It was an awesome film in the summer of 82, but I think the personal association that I have with it makes it even more so for me. So I had to throw The Secret of Nim in there. Um, I don't know about you guys, but Secret of Nim is, 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 is freaking amazing. For me, every bit as impressive as Blade Runner and The Thing and, and those other movies, but just for different reasons. The neat thing for me on, on on that one was I think it might have been the first movie I ever saw where I read the book first. Oh wow, cool! Um, you know, I mean, Craig and I did a whole show on uh, uh, arguing against people who always say the movie is better than the book. Um, the book is better than the movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and and uh, uh, you know, like when Water when I saw Watership Down, I wanted to read the book until I saw the book and realized that nah, I got to wait a few years. I'm not ready for a. <laughs> cinder block like that but um but but um miss brisby and the rats of nim i think was the uh the original title and they decided well we don't want to have rats in the title of the movie that'll keep people away from it um but but yeah it, it was it was it was uh neat to see something that i thought i already knew the story of but then seeing it reimagined by somebody as as sort of singularly imaginative as don bluth was like okay well, n- nothing None of the movie that played in my head reading that book nearly matched up to just the the imagery he did. In the beginning, we were ordinary street rats, stealing our daily bread and living off the efforts of man's work. We were captured, put in cages, and sent to a place called Nim. 
There were many animals there in cages. They were put through the most unspeakable tortures to satisfy some scientific curiosity. Often at night, I would hear them crying out in anguish. Twenty rats and eleven mice were given injections. Our world began changing. We had become intelligent. So it's it's um. Even though, like you know, growing up on Disney like Disney movies, like we all did, there was still there was something about the animation of well, first the year before the seeing heavy metal and realizing, holy crap, mm. I'm not ready for animation at all yet. I don't know anything. <laughs> um, but then, uh, but then seeing something that was more aimed for you know our actual age group, um, uh, it, it, it's it's weird to lump that and heavy metal in together. But I kind of do because there no, were two movies do. that showed me how little I actually already knew about animation, and there's so much more uh, to be seen and discovered and stuff. I also thought it was interesting. Forgive me, I just said this real quick and let you other guys jump in. <laughs> Another personal thing, um, you know, I was raised by a single mom for, for for quite some time. You know, she was she was alone for a while, and I was amazed at how many single moms love The Secret of Nim. And I think it's it speaks to a very adult sensibility. You know, maybe while it is in a certain degree geared toward a certain age group, um, the best fairy tales, the best genre stories, I think do that crossover thing where they can rope in and speak to other people as well. And over the years, I've just been amazed, especially back then, at how many single moms I talked to. Uh, just over, when we were working at Strawberries and Clothier, I talked to people. Uh, when I was working at Video Concepts and recommended the film, I talked to people. Uh, years later, working in restaurants, uh, just every now and then, The Secret of Men would come up, and I was amazed at how many single mothers loved that film. Yeah. I got nothing on this one. I never saw it. That's cool. <laughs> well, I, I, I'll, I'll jump in and say something. I, I will kind of do the role reversal here. You remember Craig saying that one of the things that he was most excited about, about Tron, was the fact that I was interested in it. And mm-hmm. this is one of those movies that I did not see in the theater. If I'm remembering correctly, I saw this at your house. Did I not, yeah. Craig? You showed this to me. The and, old RCA video disc. Yeah. Was it that used the needle where you put the whole caddy in the machine? Ka-chung, exactly. ka-chung, yeah. Yep. And yeah. Uh, I think you, wasn't it also the one where you had to, you know, flip sides, you had to stick it back yes. in, pull it out, yeah. flip it over, halfway through the movie. In. But yeah, but I remember watching this movie at your house, and um, that, you know, the, the thing about it was I loved it because i saw you know how much it meant to him and um and it was you know like i said i missed it in the theater but uh, craig was kind enough to show to me and 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 share his feelings about it with me so i I appreciated that cool cool thanks man all right so uh can't talk about the summer of 82 without talking about et the extraterrestrial 
These are going to be some of the best movies according to me, and also some of the best according to the man across the aisle from me, Gene Sisko, film critic of the Chicago Tribune. And this is Roger Ebert, film critic of the Chicago Sun-Times. Now, it has been quite a year. I could have filled my best ten list three times. I had 30 films that I thought qualified or record for me, and the public seemed to agree. 1982 was the best year at the box office in the last 30 years. And more adults came back to the movies, and while young people are always steady moviegoers, last year, according to the Gallup poll, 14% more adults went to the movies drawn back by enormous across-the-board support hits like On Golden Pond, Rocky Three, and the movie Roger begins with on his best list, E.T. The name of the movie is E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and in no time at all everybody knew that title stood for a lonely little visitor from outer space who was stranded on Earth millions of light years away from his home and who became the special friend of a little boy. Now there was one element that really made E.T. work as a great entertainment. I'd say it was the imagination and accuracy with which it got inside that little boy's mind. E.T. wasn't a science fiction movie so much as it was a memory of the fierce attachment and loyalty that kids have for pets and for playmates and the opportunity presents itself even for alien beings. By the end of the year, E.T. was being written about as the biggest box office bestseller of all time and as a merchandising phenomenon, but E.T. was also a real good movie and I put it third on my list of the top ten. That's where it is on my list. To this day, one of the most popular movies of all time, a perennial favorite at concerts, you know, where the, you know orchestras will outside in a park, you know, do the score to E.T. And um, now, for me, the funny thing was <clears throat> when I first and, and I posted something about this maybe a week or two ago. When I first saw E.T. that summer, everybody was talking about how the movie touched them and it made them cry. And when I first saw E.T. I enjoyed it, I dug it, I got it, or, or so I thought, but I, I didn't cry. I mean, I, I thought it was a good film. And it wasn't until maybe 15 years later, um, I guess when I was old enough to understand what this quote-unquote children's film, and I say that for a reason, quote-unquote, was doing, one early a.m., I watched it 15 years later, and I actually started crying. Um, Robert Zemeckis once uh, said, I think it was in... Um, Film Comment magazine. Um, I, I have to double check, but it was an interview, and he was—he's he's had some great articles. Once he talked about the greatest high school films of all time, and rather than uh, uh, the usual suspects uh, that you would expect to see in that list, he mentioned films like The Great Escape, and it was brilliant because he talked about how all the main characters that were high school tropes, where you had like. You had the jocks who would be like Steve McQueen, you know, the bad boys on the motorcycles. You had the brains like um, Donald Pleasance. Uh, you had the con artists, like the guys who would smuggle, like sneak cigarettes or whatever into, and that was James Garner, you know. <laughs> and and you had uh, Steve McQueen would constantly go to the cooler, and those were the guys who constantly went to detention, you know. <laughs> but he talked, and it was, it was brilliant. And anyway, he had another uh, uh, um, uh, piece. We talked about family films, and he mentioned how family films, that phrase, unfortunately, has kind of been co-opted through the years to mean kiddie movie. And when you say family film, the average person, they go to Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, you know <laughs> wow, I didn't expect that. You know, <laughs> uh, or, or <laughs> you, know, um, you know, Freaky Friday, uh, That Darn Cat, th those kind of films. But, um, but he said a true family film should be a film that everyone in the family can dig and get something from, whether it's kids, whether it's adults, whether it's grandma and grandpa, whether it's those surly 
moody teenagers. And, you know, this is the guy who gave us Back to the Future and Roger Rabbit. And even, you know, I guess you can say that even Castaway, I'm still amazed that little kids love that film. So he said a family film should be that. And for me, um, E.T. didn't become that until 15 years after I saw it. I was watching at early a.m. I was doing like a Spielberg, week-long Spielberg-a-thon, you know, watching all these Spielberg movies in the early a.m. And I was watching E.T. one night, and it got to the scene where E.T. is dying for all intents and purposes, and Elliot's next to him in that uh, isolation tent or area or whatever. And there's a scene where Elliot gets up, and he's looking at E.T., and his reflection is superimposed over E.T., and E.T.'s heart is fading. You know, his glowing red heart is fading. And Elliot is saying, please don't die. Come back, come back. And it suddenly dawned on me that um, this was a film by an adult. Okay, E.T. was dying because all of the grown-ups in the film, essentially for all intents and purposes, their lack of faith, their lack of innocence, their lack of believing in anything, essentially was killing him. And when Elliot is pleading for E.T. not to die and his face was superimposed on him, for some reason it finally dawned on me, oh my God, this is a grown-up, the filmmaker, saying, I don't want this part of me to die. Please come back. Please don't die. And it wasn't until 15 years later, after I had my heart broken a couple times, after I had had a few dreams dashed, after I had had life kick me up and down the street a few times, and you're tempted to give up on that I don't want to say innocence, but uh, a belief that you had in younger years. And I was watching it, and it's like, please don't die. Please come back. And I suddenly freaking broke down, and I started crying like the proverbial little bitch. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I, I got it. And it suddenly dawned on me that E.T. wasn't just a kiddie movie, but it was actually a freaking Francois Truffaut movie, like the 400 Blows or Small Change, just you know, with a spaceship and uh, uh, a stranded alien and a little kid from a broken family who um, goes through his own version of the 400 Blows. You know, and those familiar with the Truffaut film will get the reference. So for me, yeah, E.T. took 15 years from the summer of 82 to finally catch up to me or for me to catch up to it. So that's my take on E.T., uh, 15 years late. <laughs> Boy, am I going to sound like a heartless bastard. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I remember I watching that with, with another mutual friend of, of mine and Jim's who was like total sci-fi geek too mm -hmm. and sitting with the theater during that scene and for me at the time at that age the scene was so drawn out and my friend <laughs> next to me was crying during that scene oh, interesting. and I remember just leaning over to him and going the hell are you crying for this is taking so long he's gonna live <laughs> Because <laughs> to me, it was just it was it was overly dramatic, and it was taking too long. That it's like, of course he's gonna freaking live. They're not gonna kill him and, off in the final act. And obvious, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm that heartless bastard. That that was that's my biggest recollection of seeing ET in the theater. Okay, cool, cool. Guys, Adam, Carl, you guys. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm, no, no, no. I just, Honestly, hey, like I said, it took me 15 years. To fi for, for you know for me to finally catch up to it so no I mean I was not I didn't think it was a terrible movie I thought it was a good movie but it just didn't 
carry my heart away like it did most of the people at the time it came out. Yeah. So yeah, I, I can totally I can totally understand that. There are people now, and and the reason I posted that thing a couple of weeks ago was because there were people who said, "Hey, you know, I got to be honest with you. For me, ET is just a movie with this bad special effect creature, and it, it's still uh, you know it, it's no big deal." So I yeah, I know there were a lot of people. The, one of the few movies here because I've watched Tron over and over again. Wrath mm-hmm. of Khan is a go-to. I watch that all mm-hmm. the freaking time. Even if I just want something on in the background, um, right. that's one I always go to. And, you know, a bunch of the other movies we've talked about, this is one movie of, of, on our list today that I don't think I've seen in decades. I, for whatever reason, I've never gone back to watch this movie. Okay. It, you know, and it's funny because I had not watched it in 15 years. Maybe conduct an experiment Watch it again yeah. within the next couple of yeah. weeks. You know, just to see what happens. I mean, maybe it'll be the same reaction. Maybe not. I'll report but, back. Uh, like I said, I am. Um, um, yeah, for me today, I don't think of ET as a kid movie. I think of it, like I said, uh, along the same lines as um, the Four Hundred Blows, Small Change, The Bicycle Thief. I mean, I totally see it as one of those kind of movies. Yeah, I see it in that particular genre, and not as a science fiction film or, or, or a genre film, but. That's just me. If we're going to throw more, you know, fractured ET viewing stories into the mix, um, <laughs> why not? Hell, um, a bad boy in there. I mentioned, you know, about the, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, when I saw Blade Runner and the thing, I was staying with my uncle and my aunt in, in Florida, in uh, mm-hmm. Maryland. My uncle taught at the Smithsonian. Um, he was a decorated Vietnam veteran, and he was kind of a badass you know I, I myself come from a a broken home I never knew my father so my uncle Bill was the coolest guy in the universe and I remember him taking me to see E.T. and so I saw E.T. with a a, a um, decorated Vietnam vet who had uh, got shot in the leg during a second tour and it was you know if you could pull something good out of a out of the Vietnam War, it would be an American at least doing their duty by their country. Um, watching ET and not being feeling that you're not allowed to cry uh, wow. <laughs> was an extremely painful and and unpleasant experience for me because I wanted to ball my hmm. eyes out. And I'm hmm. sitting next to I'm sitting next to my faux father figure who you know. Uh, just everything was just, you know, tough asses and this, that, and the other thing. You know, that guy was the toughest ass I ever met, you know, and just like, mm-hmm. there, you know, there, you know there's, no, there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in Uncle Bill either. And, <laughs> right. and so, like, I didn't really enjoy E.T. until the second time I saw it with my cousin Kathy and her daughter, my cousin Tiffany, and I could weep like a cheerleader. Um, mm. So it was, uh, that's my, that's all I can contribute to the, uh, the E.T. experience. <laughs> well, Jim, that kind of sounds familiar to kind of remember when we were talking with David Mickey Evans about Radio Flyer, you know, yeah. and about how there's definitely one of those movies that make men, men cry, and how you said you were working at a theater at that time, and there were guys who would come out of the movie into the lobby rubbing your eyes with the proverbial, oh, I just got something in my eye kind of excuse, <laughs> so you know. I got some dust hitting everybody. <laughs> exactly. And how there's this thing where the whole not allowed to cry thing, you know, yeah, yeah, I think it's pretty pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, Carl, you want to toss anything in there? It doesn't have to be, you know, the, well, the, I, the crying did you thing. Cry? Right. I, I, <laughs> right. I, 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 did you cry? Why didn't you? I, What's the matter with you? Yeah. I, I probably <laughs> have less to contribute on this. I saw it, and while I wasn't 
you know, bawling, crying like a baby or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought it was a it was a very heartfelt experience, and I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. But I have not watched it in many many years either. Unlike other things, like you said, Rathacon and other things that I've you know thrown on to watch over the years. Um, <laughs> un- unfortunately, I would have to say that when I look back on ET. The main thing that I remember more than anything else is hearing Neil Diamond sing Turn On Your Heart Light on the radio constantly (laughs) during those days. I I don't think I've Uh. ever heard a song that was so overplayed in my entire life. But I enjoyed the movie. Nothing against the movie. And and I still think it's a great film. But that's what I remember. I remember just all of the craziness surrounding Mm -hmm. it. And Neil Diamond singing that song. And the you know et reese's pieces and all that other kind uh, of stuff. yeah exactly That's what yep. i remember when i th- when i think about et today well interesting i mean like again uh, just as i had not watched it in 15 or so years um and keith said he hasn't watched it in decades and you said you haven't watched it in decades i'm, I'm just curious to maybe within the next couple of weeks give it another watch <laughs> i'm just curious as to what your reaction would be now because, uh, you know, I'm not saying you'll have the same reaction that I did. Everybody's different, you know. My favorite color is green. Somebody else's favorite color is red or blue. Mm-hmm. Who knows why? Who cares? <laughs> you know, it just is what it is. Um, but I am curious to see that um, having had some life, you know, some water under the bridge, you know, um, certain movies to me are um, 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 interactive I mean, obviously, some of the most obvious examples would be like Kubrick's 2001, mm-hmm. which like the meaning, quote unquote, of the movie changes every damn time you watch it. You know, <laughs> uh, The Exorcist might be another. And um, William Friedkin and, 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 and William Peter Blatty always had this constant friendly debate about what the ending meant, whether it was positive or negative. Like, you know, William Peter Blatty said he always felt the end of the movie made it look like the devil won. Whereas William Peter, Bla- whereas William Friedkin said, no, absolutely not, um, because you have the Jason Miller character sacrificing himself to save this little girl, and there is, you know, as the Bible says, no greater love than somebody who lays down his life for a friend, you know. So it's almost like a biblical ending there, you know, where it's a Christ-like ending of sacrificing himself to save somebody else. So yeah, The Exorcist still generates that kind of debate, friendly debate. Uh, Two thousand one certainly does. Uh, you know, uh, Blade Runner for a long time did, you know, people wondering, was Deckard really a replicant or not? You know, it wasn't until years later that certain filmmakers and writers stated their personal opinion on the matter. But for years, I, I, I used to love having the argument with people. Um, so, yeah, I think that E.T. is one of those movies that as you get older and you go back and look at it, um, you you will, it's kind of a mirror where you read, where you get from it what you bring to it um, so that's what I think of it now and I'm just curious to see if you guys rewatch it now you know what you might come away with maybe the same thing you know as some people still say yeah it's just a, a bad special effect it's charming no big deal that's what I thought when I first saw it but I came to it years later and I guess had a different reaction just because of where I was mm-hmm. I think some movies do that I think E.T. is one of those movies but you know anyway. I could actually so that's cop to uh uh, crying like a wuss even the first time I saw I saw it a few times that summer and I yeah. cried each time but for me it was never I, I was totally with Keith I mean Keith and I didn't see it but we talked about it plenty that summer but the scene he was referring to absolutely I agreed I was right there that that was going on too long and also we all knew where it was heading um, for me it was yeah. the end 
because I had this I mean as a kid roughly Elliot's same age I really thought that Elliot was going to go with E.T. I thought this was going to be like Close Encounters huh. So when they actually do part ways, that's when that's when I that's when it get it got me, um, hmm. and you know, like I said, I saw it a few more times that summer. I've owned it on VHS, I've owned it on DVD. Don't break it out that often, but um, j- just maybe four or five years ago, I was walking home from work and passing MIT, and MIT uh, uh, they had this one small park where they would show uh, movies one. Uh, one night a week, um, you know, just an inflatable screen or whatever. And my girlfriend was working at a restaurant at the time. She was working late that night. I wasn't in a rush or anything. And and I saw the Universal logo come up, and I just kind of said to myself, "Oh, it's ET." And then sure enough, oh, goddamn, it was ET. All right, I'm going to stand here and mm-hmm. watch the first ten minutes, the first twenty minutes. <laughs> I'm going to keep going till this scene. I watched the whole damn movie, leaning on a fence, mm-hmm. uh, just by, and and hearing. Uh, you know, people people our age who would have been kids now bringing their kids to it and everything and hearing, man, just hearing all these little kids crying their eyes out. Um, mm. In the end, it, it 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 still works for me. It's and it's one that I don't revisit it as like like we're all saying. I don't revisit it as as often as the other titles we've all mentioned. But I I have had more recent experiences with it, and it still it it holds up for me. I guess is what I'm saying is that it it'll, cool. it's always worked on me. Let's end with uh, Rocky Three, <laughs> um, which to me was one of the, you know how some movies just generate a whole bunch of quotes that people love to repeat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I remember just after that movie came out, it was kind of like, it wasn't until Big Trouble in Little China opened a couple years later, you know, and I remember that, you know, after seeing that and the people who I, who did see it, you know, they would like just quote dialogue from it, you know, um, and I remember Rocky Three. Most of the dialogue that people quoted was dialogue spoken by Mr. T. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, obviously written by Sylvester Stallone. Like, hey, woman. Hey, woman. Listen here. Since you're a man and ain't got no heart, maybe you'd like to see a real man. I bet you stay up late every night dreaming you had a real man, don't you? I tell you what. Bring your pretty little self over to my apartment tonight, and I'll show you a real man. You want to? You can and, and uh, uh, Clubber Lang do you agree to a rematch with Balboa uh, no we said, no, we said uh, uh, do you consent to a rematch with Balboa uh, no do you, I do not do you accept Balboa's challenge oh challenge that's right a challenge no I do not because Balboa is no challenge <laughs> but I'd be more than happy to beat up on him some more you know <laughs> and just that after that movie came out everybody was just quoting all that dialogue I mean I know I was but uh but I thought it was amazing that even though at the time Rocky Three was certainly the most, for lack of a better term, commercial of the three Rocky films, uh, it was certainly the most, again, for lack of a better term, canned. I mean, the first two films were much more gritty. You know, they were much more, had the feel of an independent film. Rocky Three felt like a big budget movie. It felt like a franchise movie. But the fact that it still made, if you saw that in the movies, the reaction of audiences would be akin to what Keith said, um, you know, when you see the Enterprise rising up, <laughs> you know, in the Mutara Nebula. I mean, the audience just freaked. It's like, wow, this is like, I mean, the, the, I would guess the only other time I had experienced that in a movie would be when I first saw Jaws, 
And I saw that five times that summer at 75 at five different theaters across the country. And audience reactions were like identical in all of them. Everybody laughing in the same place, screaming in the same place, you know. Um, and then when Star Wars came out and the destruction of the Death Star, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody go, just going ape. And uh, I would say the, the next up would probably be... Um, well, maybe the Empire Strikes Back when Darth Vader says, I am your father, and everybody screams and says, he's lying, you know? <laughs> uh, and then Rocky Three. I mean, I would definitely put the climax of Rocky Three as one of the most incredible um, film-going experiences I ever had in the movies. That movie just works. Call it cliched, call it predictable, but uh, again, maybe it's that Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan thing where... You know, there, there's the scene where freaking Mickey dies, and uh, um, and and you know, and and Rocky is, is is thinking that all the fights he won were just setups, and there's this crisis of of, of confidence in himself, and then Adrian goes into labor and has complications. Yeah, this is all soap opera stuff, <laughs> but damn, it works. You know, and by the time he comes out of all of that and gets his head together enough to come back and whoop Clubber Lang's ass. <laughs> I mean, the audience just loses their minds. And to this day, I, you know, rewatching Rocky Three, it is just a interactive movie experience. And yeah, I, I, I definitely think it is every bit as um, worthy of mention as like, Tron and, and, and The Thing and, and, and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan as far as movie and Poltergeist. You know, the scene where the guy was picking his face off. As far as movies that really made the audience you know this is what movies should be as adam said uh this this is what movies are and maybe we just got so conditioned in 82 to believe that this is what movies always are and always will be and that wasn't always the case but um i think looking back in time you know rocky 3 is one of those films that stands out for me at least as far as as a movie that loves its audience you know i I, i've always said that um you may have great movies or good movies oscar bait movies but I think making movies is, forgive the off-color analogy, like sex. And you have those where the filmmaker is basically, you know, I'm sorry to put it this way, masturbating. And it's like, yeah, they feel great, and the rest of the audience is just being forced to watch. <laughs> then you have other movies that, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I want to get some pleasure out of this too, but I want you to feel good too. I want this to be a great time for you too. And there are movies that may not be Oscar-worthy movies, but they sure as hell love their audience. And I think Rocky Three was one of those movies that year that just loved the audience. Anybody else? Is that is that it? Uh, <laughs> I'll be the naysayer on this one. I'm, and I'm sure I'll okay, get yeah, the, go ahead. Uh, this That's one right. surprised me because it was... And The Empire Strike... I'm, I'm sorry. Return of the Jedi was a similar experience for me, but these were... Hmm the first two movies that I looked forward to so much and then I was a mm. little underwhelmed. I mean, I mean still, I, I was still happy okay. I saw them. I still went to both of them. Uh-huh. I mean, I saw, who the hell knows how many times I saw Jedi and I know I saw Rocky 3 at least three times that summer. But still, mm-hmm. it was, it, it I, I get what you're saying about it loving the audience and clearly the audience loved it back because it was, it was the number two movie behind E.T. Um, mm-hmm. It was, but it, <clears throat> I think I was too young to realize that I felt like it felt like a product, but that's kind of mm-hmm. something was just off that I couldn't quite put my finger on at 12 years old. And I think it was just basically that, that slickness that, uh, like you're saying that, that mm-hmm. one and two had that this one didn't. And, but, and, and as I got older, I came to realize, but that's, that's the, 
character's trajectory, that all makes sense. But to me, it was just mm-hmm. somehow less interesting. And then I think the main thing was that as a as a six year old seeing the first one, Apollo Creed was at first the terrifying villain until I realized no, this is just this is a man. This is a really well-drawn-out man. This is not just a villain character, and even more so in the second one. And for my money, Creed was the most interesting thing about the third one. Um, and my, I, I think mm-hmm. yeah, part yeah. of my big problem was that Clubber, to me, was nowhere near as interesting as Creed was in any single one of those movies. Um, you, mm-hmm. Good character, good villain. And he, you know, Clubber was a straight-up villain. And yeah, Creed exactly. was yeah, a multi-dimensional is. guy. And you know, Craig and I have talked about this a few times before, but for me, one of the singular... I mean, for me, the single greatest moment in all of the Rocky movies is in 2, when Apollo is sitting at his table full of advisors, and they're all telling him the ups and downs of should he or should he not do the rematch, and, and uh, Creed's top coach, Duke, gets up from the table, comes closer to Creed, and is whispering to him that, you know, we don't need this, let it go. To me, that is... Hmm the perfect moment in the, the entire Rocky series and Clubber doesn't get anything near that. that Clubber's comparatively oh, so one dimensional yeah. to me and, and I think I think that, I guess that's the real surprise is that, is that Creed mm-hmm. was so I mean the, practically had as much screen time as Rocky it felt like or maybe he just as a presence mm-hmm. he loomed that large and Clubber didn't Clubber felt like a cookie cutter mm-hmm. villain and that's why it just didn't mm-hmm. it didn't Rocky losing to him, and then the the comeback and the triumph in the end. And neither one of them resonated to me the way the way the first mm-hmm. two movies. I still obviously I still liked it. I still bought the soundtrack. I still bought the single. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, um, yeah, it just it just felt a little bit like a product to me. And I I and then when I would see Mr. T on in on interviews, he seemed like <laughs> a much more interesting person. <laughs> the right. clever leg. So just you know, maybe maybe Mr. T needs to ad lib some more, you know, because uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I liked it and it totally belongs in this conversation. But you know, I mean, a few uh, each of us has been a naysayer on on one of the other movies yeah. here, so this well, is my turn yeah. to be the naysayer and go, yeah, it's good. I liked it. <laughs> cool, but yeah. yeah, okay, cool, very cool. Let's um, let's go to something that Jim uh, mentioned. Um, uh, I don't say off camera, <laughs> but I guess off uh, off record earlier. Uh, so we're just going to wrap up. And so, Jim, would you please explain okay. what it was you had brought up? What I was thinking of was was that um, aside from all these great movies, and we've already touched on some of the theaters where we saw them, and um, that we probably each have that single movie where we have such total recall of the entire day and where we saw it and who we were with and maybe even what we were wearing and what we ate or something. Um, and for me, it was a little earlier in the summer, and we've already mentioned it, uh, Conan the Barbarian. Um, mm-hmm. My dad used to work in Manhattan at the time, and he took my brother and me. He took us to Times Square a few months earlier when uh, the, the, during, the, during the brief early 80s revival of 3D, um, he mm-hmm. took us to see the House of Wax re-release with Vincent Price, cool, uh, which was a blast. But it was just, it was you know, okay. It was just a standard, standard theater and a little bigger than all the other ones we've seen, and it was a great experience. But then he took us to see Conan in the the Rivoli, which was on Broadway ah, on Forty wow. Seventh Street. Um, uh-huh. 
in the th- the theater yeah. district. Yeah, and it, it, the Rivoli had been uh, twinned. It had used to be, you know, one of the big, great big picture palaces, but then they turned right. it into an upstairs big, big and downstairs, where they basically turned the balcony into a separate theater. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they were showing Conan on both screens, and uh, we walked in at a point where like we were we were not really. Um, we weren't at the beginning of either showtime, so we just went into the one that had been on the lease, and then we just stayed around and watched <laughs> it again for the you know after the, after it restarted. And mm-hmm. this was my first real experience with grindhouse level audience participation. <laughs> as excited as I was to see this movie, because I was already a fan of the Conan comics, um, mm-hmm. this theater was all kinds of inappropriate. <laughs> the movie was already but the comments were. <laughs> I, I love those theaters. And it was just this is this yeah. is great. I can't believe I'm hearing this stuff and I'm not in trouble for hearing it, right? Like because we're all at the age <laughs> like you have you have the Richard Pryor LPs and the George Carlin LPs and you sneak in the your basement and listen to them with right. friends and hope your parents don't know you're listening to it. I'm hearing way worse stuff than Richard Pryor or, or George Carlin. <laughs> um, and like when Coders with the witch, yeah, I mean, oh man, exactly. the audience just totally had commentary, commentary yeah, on that one. Yeah. There, were, there were two guys uh, <laughs> behind us haggling over the price of a bag of weed. So just to prove that it was worth <laughs> the price, they just rolled it up and lit it up in the damn theater. Um, <laughs> yep, yep. And and my dad, you know, mumbled to me, he was like, you know, I feel like moving seats, but at the same time, these guys are the funniest ones in the whole place. So, <laughs> so we stayed right where we were, and I got my first contact high off of these. You know, yeah. my dad referred to him as Cheech and Chong, even though I think they were actually a black guy and a white guy. <laughs> but, uh-huh. you know, in the dark, big weed fans, sure, Cheech and Chong, they're there. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, to this day, even when I hear Cheech and Chong mentioned, before I think of Cheech and Chong, I think of these two guys behind You think the of those two guys. Um, so, yeah, it was just, I mean, it was, one, love the movie, even though, and, you know, you, you, I've also read the pulp novels, and I know the, the diehard Robert E. Howard fans loathe that we see Conan as a slave when at no point in any of the novels was Conan ever a slave and the other um, no it it yeah, works in the I, film. I agree and again at 12 years old they hadn't read all the pulp so it wasn't as as uh, as you know horrible in front a deal breaker <laughs> right? yeah um yeah it was just it I, I had I had wanted to see Excalibur the year before my dad wouldn't take me because he had already seen it and decided it was a little too trippy and violent for us so this to me felt like mm-hmm. the big super violent writer passage kind of thing um mm-hmm. and cool. and and that score you know i mean we we've we've talked plenty oh, about man. scores but that was a score that just ripped through like i mean i wanted from the from the opening credits i wanted to run down the street find a record store and buy that album and buy this album yeah, so yeah. that's basically seeing conan cool. in uh, in times square with with a with with a haze of weed over us and just every filthy semi-racist 100% sexist comment you could think of being mm-hmm. thrown at the screen um, yeah uh, uh, colorful times remember oh. the day vividly uh, and and does, does anybody have anything else that, that any of those other movies that summer that resonate or maybe not even that summer I mean that's, uh-huh. that, that fall okay. we had First Blood and Creep Show and a okay. whole bunch of other great stuff so mm-hmm. anything from 82 that grabbed anybody in a similar way mm-hmm. well I would say Adam for some reason I I, I don't know uh Call it a feeling. <laughs> I definitely think you have something to contribute here. Well, I'll tell you. No. Um, <laughs> oh, it's Bethel Horse House then with that voice. <laughs> well, no, that, was, that was the uh, representative from Rhode Island from 1776. Oh, winding, damn it. 
<laughs> I don't think there's anything that was so that it can't be debated. Hell yeah, I'm for debating anything. <laughs> I really, I really, I feel a kinship between him and Gabby Hayes and uh, Blazing Saddles. <laughs> Blazing, yeah, Blazing Saddles. You know, I never thought of that, but yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, people talk about people talk about um, head cannon. You know, where it's like, well, mm -hmm. it's legit in your brain. You know. So, like, like I've always stated that I think that the 1976 King Kong with Jeff Bridges is actually a prequel to The Big Lebowski. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow! I, I got, I got in. Oh, never heard that one. It's great. Like, oh, I, I, I've gone into this. I've gone into this. Uh, got into this on Twitter, and it's just like, I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> that ape really tied the island together. I mean, it works. It <laughs> works. And uh, <laughs> I think that uh, that that the Rhode Island guy and Gabby Hayes are uh, related. Uh, as far as <laughs> as far as 1982, I, I got to say that I, I mean I've already mentioned it. It's like it, the double feature with Tron yeah. and Raiders exploding. Uh, um, Raiders. That was a that was a, a, a weird, wonderful, magical day. And I remember everything about the Fox Theater. I remember I remember the taste of the popcorn I had. I remember my disappointment when they said no, we're not just we're not going to rethread Raiders and and let you continue watching it. Uh, here's your money back, and I was just—I was like, no, I. Oh man! I want to see Raiders. It's, uh, it's not going <laughs> yeah. to be available on widescreen laserdisc for ten years. Show it to me. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's 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 my. In, 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 I mean that, and listening to the thing. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I right, right. I could okay. take right. I could take a pencil right now and draw for you the pattern of the carpeting of that theater because I learned mm -hmm. everything about that lobby in those sad two hours of of monster sounds and and no visuals so um wow, wow now and, you know now that we bring it up my my summer of 82 kind of sucked wow this has been a this, uh, has been, this has been a fraud experience craig thank you <laughs> right like poltergeist it was all a big lie yeah <laughs> <laughs> so that's fine hey so carl full so circle. carl how about you man <laughs> Um, I guess, uh, for me, um, again, I was really looking forward to Tron and the other thing, of course, like I said, that that was back when I was, you know, just getting into listening to film music. So I remember there was a little record store across the street from where my parents lived at the time. And, uh, great place. I yeah, forget no, yeah. the name of it. I'm sure you and I were both in there before. It was, it was oh god, a, a zillion yeah, times. Yeah, uh, down from the what was it, the Shoprite or whatever it was that was over there, mm -hmm. and uh, right across from and, uh, right across from high school. Yeah, yeah. and um, and of course <laughs> I remember going in there and you know buying the soundtrack and you know peeling the plastic off of it and getting ready to play that and 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 you know I remember that and then just in general. Um, two things um, for some reason when I think of the summer of 82 I think about Tron and going and buying that soundtrack I think about <laughs> wearing out the Wrath of Khan soundtrack and list and that front <laughs> cover with the Enterprise and the kind of mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what you want to call it with the kind of all the lights kind of stretching off the warp of yeah. yeah and yeah, so yeah, yeah. I remember that and the other thing that uh, I always think about when I think about the summer of 82 
is, if I'm not mistaken, if my memory serves, the last time that all of us were together at a movie was when we went to see Firefox. That is true. And, yep, and that may be true. the last time we've all been together in the same place, period. I think you're right. And yeah. I mean, we talk every year, a couple times a mm-hmm. year, but yeah, I think physically, all three of us, I think that was the last time we were yep. all together. And so that is also <clears throat> the summer that I started collecting uh, ticket stubs. And mm-hmm. I have every ticket stub from every movie I've ever been to since then. And one of the things that makes me madder than anything else is when you get to some theaters that started giving the cheapo paper tape tickets yeah <laughs> instead of the nice yeah tickets. yeah that really just that fade in in, in a couple yeah, of months that, yeah. re- that really irks me but but I, I would have to say my fondest memory of 82 was just the fact that that was the last time we were all together hmm. that's cool. a hell of a movie yeah. to, to to like one that we didn't touch on but that's a, that was also a blast and right. another another flop that is kind of recently getting a bit yes. of appreciation uh-huh. yeah yeah I mean, I actually remember uh, watching Orson Welles on the Merv Griffin show that summer talking about why he felt Firefox was an underrated film in general and that at the time, Clint Eastwood was an underrated director in oh, particular. Cool. Yeah, I just I distinctly remember that. Yeah, yeah, Orson Welles was going on about Eastwood and Firefox and basically about the, the subtext in the film about how people who have never had to work and fight for certain liberties that they take for granted. Which is, boy, that's pretty pertinent right now, isn't it? You know, but uh, yeah, or, or, Orson Welles, yeah, he was definitely uh, championing Clint Eastwood and Firefox that summer. I distinctly remember that, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Keith. So, yeah, the, the the most, like, visceral memory I've already touched on, that's me being a heartless bastard during E.T. <laughs> um, I, I don't know why that one stuck with me more than anything to this day, but... The only other, I just went, I just Googled up like Movies 1982 just to see what else was out there. And the only other one that we haven't touched on that I remember seeing in a theater, and it's late in the game, but it's The Dark Crystal. Nice. And oh, I cool. remember okay. sitting yeah, in the yeah, theater yeah, that was like, uh, watching that thing, just going, mm-hmm. what the fuck is this? <laughs> and just like, because a lot of people had that reaction. <laughs> person to begin with, I was very much sci fi and, and like World War II and, and that kind of thing. But just like mm-hmm. sitting there at the Dark Crystal, just like, what the hell am I watching? Yeah, it was almost like a, a head film. Yeah, it was <laughs> just too yeah. weird for me. Quick note: you know, I thought I was going into this thing thinking it's the Muppets, so it's like, holy crap! Mm-hmm. Was it the Wilton Cinema? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it was either Wilton. Yeah, it was either Wilton or one of the two Westport. Okay. Yeah, I saw it in both. probably Wilton actually because I saw it with with my friend Chris. Um, who was the one I, I chastised during ET? Um, we did see a bunch of stuff at the Wilton Theater, so it probably was there. Nice, cool. Now, for me, uh, even though I mentioned that whole uh, Blade Runner the thing, you know, thing is probably being one of the most incredible double features I ever mentioned. Um, instead of re- revisiting that, I'm going to do a a, a runner up. Uh, for me uh, that summer would be uh, and as with Jim it was Conan the Barbarian um, I saw Conan the Barbarian at a grindhouse theater in Philadelphia uh, it's kind of funny because now I go down there and that whole area around City Hall uh, around Market Street and Broad Street it used to just be a bunch of record shops and porn theaters and grindhouse theaters and now it's like a mini Times Square New York which is like family friendly and a big giant shopping center and 
you know, and, and there's a theater district not far from there, and, and there's jazz and music and the whole nine yards. But back then, it was just the mecca of grindhouse movie theaters with awesome double features and triple features all the time that had prints that had been run so many times. You saw every now and then the film would skip. You definitely saw the the, the rips in the film. And I remember first seeing Conan the Barbarian. God, I can't remember the name of the theater. It might have been the Midtown. Um, and I saw it there that summer on a double feature with Enter the Dragon. And it wasn't even a re-release of Enter the Dragon. I had seen Enter. I, I think I had Enter the Dragon on like VHS or something like that. But I, I don't know. VHS wasn't that popular. But I had seen Enter the Dragon on on HBO a number of times. So it's not like the movie, you know, had not been seen. But it was an old print of Enter the Dragon. And like Jim, it was one of those experiences where, uh, yeah, there was people just smoking weed in the theater. Uh, or you go down to the bathroom and come back with a contact high. <laughs> and I remember Conan the bar, and I distinctly remember like telling Carl this. I see, and for this day, this still stands out to me. Um, toward the end, where Conan was watching, God, I can't remember the character. Uh, uh, he had lanced him. He was watching him die, and then somebody was coming up behind him, and somebody in the audience shouted, "Look out, Conan!" <laughs> you know, and. That's when you know a film has just gripped the audience. An- another one of those films that loves its audience. You know, uh, people were just into it. I think Stephen King once mentioned a story about how sometimes films that may not be considered so great are great films because of what they do to the audience. He mentioned seeing the Amityville Horror in Times Square, um, you know, in-, in New York, and how when the movie started, everybody was doing what we said. They were getting high, they were joking, they were laughing, they were hurling comments at the screen. Um, but half hour into the movie by the time you got to the end of the movie especially when the walls are bleeding and everything that cool all different music had to get that in there uh, <laughs> he said the audience totally silent the movie had shut everyone the f up and they were just into the movie and i remember that experience watching conan the barbarian that day with uh uh, uh enter the dragon now interestingly a few weeks later I saw The Road Warrior in the same theater on a double feature with that same messed up print of Enter the Dragon. <laughs> so that was a very similar experience, you know, but uh, but I definitely have to go with Conan. Conan and Enter the Dragon double featured that that uh, summer. Can you dig it? Oh, man, that was maybe a longish, but very enjoyable one. Mm -hmm. Big time thanks to Adam, Keith, and Carl for joining in. And I guess that'll about do it. As usual, I'm Craig Jamison of Gold Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney of TheLunchMovie.com. And big time thanks to you as well for joining us here at The Movie Sneak. Until next time, when we meet you up there again in those cheap seats. Reminder that all film, music, and other clips are the rights and property of the copyright holders and are used here for entertainment, educational, and criticism purposes only.